So we are going to be in 1 John chapter 2, verses 24 through 27 this morning. And as we just read in verse 26, John tells us of the danger in view. He says, I write these things, or passage today, I write these things about those who are trying to deceive you. And as we saw last week, as Dan unpacked for us verses 18 to 23, the first part of this broader section, we saw the identity of those false teachers. John calls them antichrists, those who oppose Christ. And specifically, the identity of those who oppose Christ is, as he says in verse 22 and 23, they they are the liars, those who deny that Jesus is the Christ. And he talks about it in verse 26 today as these are the folks who are trying to deceive us. In other words, at least as the way John conceives of the false teaching here, it is not merely some sort of passive thing that exists out there. Just kind of doing its thing. It's away from us. It's not going to harm us unless we try to go out and find it. Unless we go pick a fight with it. But how he thinks of and how he conceives and expresses this false teaching is that it is actually an active threat of which we need to be concerned, against which we need to be on guard. We as a people, as the people of God who believe the truth, need to be on guard from false teaching that is a threat to our faith and our stability. And so the question that our text poses for us today is, how do we respond to the false teaching that we just walked through last week, verses 18 to 23? How do we respond to false teaching, not just the believers in John's day, but even us with the false teaching that exists today? And his claim, John's point in this passage, what he wants to uh, persuade us of, is that as we are faced with many who oppose the Anointed One, the Christ, As we're faced with many who oppose the Christ, we as the anointed ones, as his anointed ones, must continue in him. As there are many antichrists and false teachers who oppose Christ, we must continue nonetheless in Christ. And specifically, our passage today, verses 24 through 27, wants to stress this aspect of that point, that we should abide in what we've been taught about Christ. We must abide in what we've been taught. And so our structure of our passage, just to give some overview, is this. At the very beginning of our passage and the end of our passage, we get sort of a bookend, a sandwich of this command to abide. So if you look in verse 24, he says, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. Let it abide in you. Or in other words, you abide in the message. And at the end, uh, at verse 27, he says, Abide in Him. Abide in Christ. The, the, the character, the person of that message. And so we get the sandwich command. Okay? Abide. In verses 24 to 25, we get a promise that you, if you do so, you will have eternal life. And in verses 26 to 27, we have this motivation that we've been anointed. So we have the command to abide, and in the first two verses... The promise in the second two verses, the motivation. And that will shape 
the structure of our sermon today. First, I want to look at the command. What is this command? What are we called to abide in? What does it mean to abide? And then we'll look briefly at the promise and the motivation. So first of all, the command. Again, as we said, it is to abide. Now we have to ask, what does he mean by that word abide? As you may have noticed, if you've read through 1 John, if you're familiar with the Gospel of John, this word abide shows up all over the place. In fact, you might say it's like one of the central concepts of John's entire theology. And so we have to ask, what does it mean? It's a word that we don't often use today, and given the fact of the prevalence of a certain theology called Keswick theology, um, as well as I think the fact that this is a word we don't often use very much, there are a lot of popular conceptions of what it means for Christians to abide that I don't think are that actually hold true to what John is saying. I would, I would, I would guess if you were to ask the average evangelical Christian, maybe ask kind of most of us here, what does it mean to abide? Most of us would probably say something about, you know, it's kind of this habit, a, a practice of regularly meditating on God and thinking about God and having that sense of intimate uh, dependency on God, praying constantly. We would think of it almost like a spiritual activity that we engage in or a state of, of, of healthy spirituality that we try to achieve. And not that any of those things are necessarily wrong. Obviously, it's good to pray. It's good to be meditating on God. I'm not sure, actually I'm convinced otherwise, that that's, I don't think that's what John means by it as he uses it. I think what John means by abide is something much more concrete. It's not so fuzzy. It's something pretty definable. We can, it's pretty specific. Um, so oftentimes, it's the way we use it, it's this, it becomes this thing that's very hard to understand. Like, what exactly does it mean to abide? It's kind of mystical. I think John means something pretty plain by abide, something simple. The other thing, too, is it's very obvious that to abide is to be saved. These are the same, these are grouped together. There's no such thing, in other words, as someone who abide, as someone who's a Christian, someone who's a genuine believer and doesn't abide. The way we often think about it is like abiding is something that Christians try to do, but not every believer is actually abiding. That's false. The way John uses this idea of abide is that this is what it means to be a believer. If you're not abiding, you're not saved. To be saved is to abide, and to abide is to be saved. And so this is, he's talking about what it means to experience and actually possess salvation. So let me try to give you a definition. And admittedly, it's hard to define this because John uses it in a lot of different ways. But we'll start here. What he means by abide, and actually we could probably translate it something that is maybe more familiar to us to try to get over the hurdle of that word and just kind of how archaic and maybe fancy it sounds. A way you could translate it is, I think it might maybe helpful, would be something like reside. This resides. It dwells. It's present. And it communicates then the presence of a relationship. This is with that. So to reside in this way is to exist or to continue to exist in a, in a specific condition or relationship. It's for something, X, to exist and continue to exist in a specific relationship or condition. Okay, now that's very abstract. We'll give some examples 
And I think that will become more obvious. But what we're talking about in John then is he's talking about, we might think of it this way, we're talking about existing in a saving relationship to Christ. And he then to us. We relate to him and he relates to us. And we're talking about everything that's involved in that relationship. That's what John means by abide. He's talking about having this relationship with Christ and he to us and everything that's involved. So he's describing, again, what it looks like to possess and experience salvation. So let me give you some examples of how he uses this word in his writing. In Second John, his second letter, uh, verses 1 and 2, he talks about how believers abide in the truth. And he explains in the verse right before that what he means by that. He means that we know the truth. To abide in the truth is to be someone who, who knows the truth. You are someone who, who lives your life believing the truth. You exist as someone who adheres to the truth. 1 John 2.10 says that whoever loves the brother abides, or we might say resides in the light. The light is this, is, this, is this domain of you've been brought from darkness, this place of being unsaved, into the place of having the light. You know the truth now. And so to abide in, if you have love, you abide in the truth, or you abide in the light. You are saved, in other words. If you love your brother, that's an evidence that you are saved. You exist in the light. 1 John three fourteen to 15 says, uh, it talks about abiding or existing in the condition of death, versus abiding in eternal life. What does it mean to abide in eternal life? It means you possess eternal life. You're no longer dead spiritually. You don't abide in this condition of deadness. But now you abide in the condition of having eternal life. 1 John 2.14 says that the Word of God abides in you. The idea there would seem to be that the Word of God is, is so present in your life that it has a controlling influence on your life. You believe the Word. You obey the Word. So it, it, it abides in you in that very concrete sense. 1 John 4, 16 says God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. So God is love, and that means if I'm someone who abides in love, I'm someone who's characterized by love, then that would mean that I abide in God. That means I have a relationship with the God of love. To be saved... And to be owned by the God of love is, by definition, means you're going to be characterized by that love. Second John 9 says, everyone, so this is a second epistle, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide or reside in the teaching of Christ does not have God. In contrast, whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. So here reside or abide is the idea of continuing to believe the gospel. You're, you're residing in the gospel. You're residing in your belief in the gospel. You're keeping the faith. You keep believing in the gospel. Or like in our own passage that uh, Dan preached last week, 1 John 2.19, they went out from us, these false teachers, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued. The word is literally abide. They would have kept abiding with us. So the false teachers, they don't abide. They are those who abandon the faith. They don't keep in the faith. So, abiding is something very concrete. It's something quite simple. It's, it's, defina- it's definable. It's not sort of vague. It's to believe in Jesus. It's to keep holding on to the true apostolic teaching about Christ. 
It's to exist in proper relationship to Christ as one influenced by His Word, as one who obeys the command to love fellow Christians. It's someone who has genuine faith. It's also to possess and experience salvation. It's to reside in the light versus the darkness. It's to reside in eternal life versus residing in death. And as those who reside in Christ, God likewise resides in relationship to us, quite literally through the Spirit who resides in us, who indwells us. So in our passage, when John talks about abiding, what he simply means is this. We must continue holding fast to what we were taught. We must keep believing it in light of the false teachers. Abide in what you heard. Keep believing it. It's quite simple. The New Living Translation, which is more of a loose translation that tries to capture the meaning, it's less literal, you might say, I think gets at it here in this passage. So let me read. Look in your Bible, so don't look at me. Look down at your Bible, and whatever translation you have, follow along as I read the NLT. I want you to notice how it's different than the translation that you have so you can see how they're interpreting some of these phrases. So verse 24. So you must remain faithful to what you have been taught from the beginning. So your translation probably says abide, but you must abide. They take that to be you got to remain faithful to what you've been taught from the beginning. And if you do that, if you abide, you will remain in fellowship with the Son and with the Father. So abiding there is you're, you're staying connected to Jesus and the Father. And in this fellowship, we enjoy eternal life that He promised. Verse 26, I'm writing these things to warn you about those who lead you astray. Verse 27, but you have received the Holy Spirit and He lives within you. He abides. He lives within you. So you don't need anyone to teach you what is true for the Spirit teaches you everything that you need to know. And what he teaches is true. It's not a lie. So just as he has taught you, again, abide there, remain in fellowship with Christ. So they're taking that word abide and they're trying to make the meaning plain to us. For us to abide is for us to remain in, as those who believe the gospel. And to abide in Jesus is then to have that relationship with Jesus, to have fellowship with Jesus, to be saved, to experience the eternal life that is in Christ. So when John tells us in this passage that we must abide in what we've been taught and what we've heard, what does it look like for us to obey that command? If I was to have asked you, what, what does it mean for you to, to abide? What does that look like? It's very simply to continue adhering to the gospel, to the message that we've been given, to continue believing and trusting in Christ, to persevere and endure in our faith. And so as we, as we continue on, we want to ask that question. He talks about abiding in the message that we heard. We have to ask the question, what exactly is that message? So in 24, verse 24, he says, he wants you to abide in what you heard from the beginning. What you heard from the beginning. Or in 27, he talks about how we don't need anyone to teach us. We've been taught something. Okay, so what have we been taught? What was this message that they heard from the beginning? Now, in light of the fact that these false teachers, we've been told, who are these false teachers? Who are the Antichrists? They are folks who deny that Jesus is the Christ. Most likely, then, what John is referring to when he says you've got to keep believing what you are taught, it would be the opposite. 
keep believing that Jesus is the Christ. And everything about what that what is entailed in that. In other words, we might say, keep believing the gospel. Keep believing the Christian faith, the claim about Jesus coming and having died for our sins. When he talks about it in, in this terms, though, of, of believing and adhering to what you heard from the beginning, he's talking about you gotta, you got to stay faithful to the original message. Stay true to the original thing that you received. Stick to the original, original message, that line, anything that lines up with what you received. And this is important for us today as well. You might think of it this way, that we want to adhere to a theology, a teaching from Scripture, doctrine, that is faithful to the Bible, to the Christian message, not novel, not new, but faithful. New doctrine is not true doctrine. New doctrine is not true doctrine. If it's new, it's probably not true. And so for, to be faithful in our theology is not to be novel. It's not to try to come up with new ideas, but it's to state afresh what has always been true. And this goes against maybe some tendencies within our own culture. Right now, it's really popular to sort of critique every sort of tradition, everything that's established. So the establishment is bad. Traditions are bad. Sort of what's in place is necessarily bad. And there's obviously some truth to that. Sometimes things that are in place are bad. But from a Christian standpoint, there can become this tendency within the Christian faith to always want to cast off what has been. And when it comes to the area of doctrine, we should never do that. We always want to adhere to what has always been contained in the Scriptures. We want to conserve what is taught in the Scriptures. And so if there's ever a tendency to be coming up with new interpretations that have never been heard before, new doctrines and new ideas, we always want to test them back to Scripture. Sound doctrine is not going to come up with new ideas. The faith delivered once for all to the saints. There's also a sense in our culture, outside of Christianity, of this idea there's like an assumption that we're always progressing and getting better. We're always getting better, maybe in our morals. So whatever the culture kind of accepts now, it's obviously like, it's 2020. When people say that, they're assuming, well, back in those days, things were bad. And again, there's some truth to that at times. There's certainly areas that we've improved on as, an, as a society, but we shouldn't assume that just because something's new means it's necessarily better. John says you have to adhere to what you've been given. There's a sense in which as Christians, we just hold on to what's always been. It's not to say that we've always gotten it right. There's clear examples where we haven't. For example, when the church in America supported slavery, racialized slavery in America, that was a blunder. That's a big, that's a big uh, error, right? But even then, it's not that we just develop something new and the new thing is good for its own sake. We had to go back to Scripture and actually see what did Scripture really teach on this subject. And so we always go back to Scripture. We must be faithful, not novel. But the other thing is if we're going to hold on to the message that we received from the beginning, we have to be clear on what that message is. So what is the gospel? What is the gospel? Part of making sure that we continue in that message is making sure we're clear on what that message is, that we're getting it right as people, as a church. 
And as some of you, if you're friends with me on Facebook, if some of you guys are on Facebook, I shared a link to a study this week that was done by the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University. And they found that 48% of American adults adopt a view of salvation that it can be earned. 48% of American adults adopt the view that salvation is something we earn by being good enough, by kind of having some sort of uh, good works that we offer to God. Maybe our good works outweigh our bad works. That's a common way of thinking about it, right? 48% of Americans. Would it surprise you that 52% of Christians believe that? It's higher among Christians. 52% of Christians. You're like, okay, well, Christian's a broad term. What about evangelical Christians, gospel-believing Christians, people like us with statement of faith in their churches that actually say we're saved by grace, not works? 41% of evangelicals adopt a salvation-can-be-earned perspective. 41%. Churches like ours, where we have membership class and membership interviews, where we want to ask everyone who becomes a member, what's the gospel? How have you been saved? And there's reasons we ask that. We want to make sure we all understand the gospel. We should never assume that we know the gospel. We can't get bored telling each other what the gospel is. It's too important to make sure that we all understand it. It is our lifeline. And so let's be clear. What is the gospel according to John? John has told us in chapter 2, the beginning of chapter 2, Christ is the propitiation for our sins. That means our sins before God deserved his wrath. We deserve punishment before God for our sins. Our sins have broken his law. They've offended a God who is infinitely good. And he's not only infinitely good, but he's also our judge. And if we could somehow make ourselves right before him, if we could somehow absolve ourselves of those offenses or do enough good works, we wouldn't need a propitiation in Christ, would we? The very fact that Christ dies for us itself is a testimony that you can't do it. So let's be clear, Christians. There is no good work that you can offer that will earn you anything before God. And if you're here today and you think that, that somehow being good enough is what's going to get you into a right relationship with God, that somehow that's going to earn you your ticket into Christ's kingdom someday. If you think that some baptism at some point or some, your membership in a church or, or, or doing the sacraments or confessions or whatever it is, the only thing, according to the New Testament scriptures, according to Christ, that can make us right with God is Jesus himself. And the only way that we can receive that is not by earning for it. It's not by trying to earn it, but simply receiving it by trusting in him. We are justified. We are declared righteous before God by faith and faith alone. Faith plus anything is no longer faith, but faith alone. And one of the tests that we can implement then to make sure we hold on to this gospel is that John says, in order to stay clear of the error, it's not necessarily even to be able to detect the error in and of itself, but it's simply to know the gospel well enough. To know what actually is the truth. So I've been told, I'm not entirely sure if this is true, but it makes a great illustration, so go along with me. I've been told that when they train folks to find counterfeit dollar bills, that they don't actually focus a whole lot on the uh, counterfeit process. They don't try to teach people what a counterfeit bill looks like. What they do is they just teach people what a real dollar bill looks like. 
all the things to identify what a real dollar bill is. So that if those marks aren't there, well then it's clear, it's counterfeit. And we might say that certainly being on guard from false teaching is not merely this, but it's certainly not less than this. We might say that in order to guard ourselves from false teaching, we could ad adopt a similar approach. Know the gospel. Know the gospel inside and out. As 1 John 4 says, that by this you know the Spirit of God from every spirit of error. The Spirit of God is the one that confesses Jesus in the Christ. And the one who's the Spirit of error is the one who doesn't. Well, how do you know? Do they believe the gospel? If they don't, it's not right. It's as simple as that. In other words, regardless of the false teaching that's out there, as long as you keep believing the actual gospel, you're good. Someone comes along proposing some new teaching and maybe you don't know what to make of it. You're not sure. Okay, here's the test. Is it the gospel that we've had since the beginning? Does it line up? If not, you know it's false. And here's the promise he gives us. So now as we move to promise and then motivation, the promise he gives us in verse 24 and 25 is this, eternal life. He says, if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. So what he says here is, as we've seen elsewhere, eternal life is in Christ. We've seen in, in chapter 5 that this eternal life is in Christ, that whoever has the Son, therefore, has life. And so the way we have eternal life is by being connected to Jesus. You might say it this way, how do you possess and continue in and remain in that saving relationship to Christ? By believing the message about him. Those who believe the message about Jesus are joined to Jesus, and by being joined to Jesus, we have eternal life. So here's the thing. If the message, you might summarize it this way, if the message abides, you will abide. If you continue abiding in the message about Jesus, you will abide in Jesus and thereby have eternal life. And see, so he wants to motivate us with this. He wants to say, listen, this is where eternal life is. Don't go after the false teaching out there. That's death over there. This is the light. This is eternal life. Keep believing the gospel because it's here that you have eternal life. And then he gives us the motivation in verse 27. He says, but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And this anointing is, is most likely here referring to the Holy Spirit that Christ has given to us. He has poured out to us on the day of Pentecost. And the Holy Spirit here is said to teach us how. The Holy Spirit is not only the one who inspires Scripture as we know, but the Holy Spirit is then the one who awakens us to actually believe the Scriptures, what we call illumination. He enables us to understand the Scriptures. Now, one of the questions that we might immediately have in a passage like this, where he says, the Holy Spirit teaches us everything, and you don't need anyone to teach you, it raises a question. Well, does that just mean that we just, like, we shouldn't, I shouldn't be doing what I'm doing right now by teaching you? Or, like, we just, everyone's kind of, it's free game, everyone can kind of believe what they want because everyone's got the Holy Spirit and there's no controls anymore? 
No. So first of all, no, John is teaching them as he tells them they don't need a teacher. So clearly he does not see this command as absolute. He's teaching them as he says so. And we see elsewhere in Scripture that Christ has given the church teachers for its good. So he's addressing something specific. And I think we have to understand what he's saying in the light of the context. Specifically, the threat of false teachers. And as we've, as we've seen, John has been talking about things like, you know the truth. You don't need to be taught. You need to adhere to what you've heard from the beginning. There, there kind of feels like this assumption that the false teachers are trying to teach them something different. Something in addition to what they've heard. Or something contrary to what they've heard. And so in context, what John is saying, he's not saying you don't need any good, solid, Bible-based teacher in the Christian life. He's saying you don't need this added teacher from the false teachers. You don't need false teaching in the Christian life. You might think of it this way. It's not that the, as he says in verse 27, you might paraphrase it this way. You have no need that any of those false teachers should teach you. Not generally about anything, but specifically about the gospel. His anointing, it teaches you everything that you need on this. And so here's the motivation that he gives us in 27. Why should we continue in the faith? Because the Holy Christ has given the Spirit to the church as its guide. We can have confidence that what the Spirit teaches us through the Word is true. As he says, in the Spirit, there's, it's truth, there's no lie. And we can have confidence that the Spirit has taught us sufficiently. He's taught you everything you need. And so he gives us that as our motivation to continue in what we've been taught. And so what we found today is this. John's point has been that as we are faced with antichrists and false teachers who, who oppose the anointed one, the Christ, we nonetheless must continue in him as his anointed ones. We must continue believing what we've been taught. And as we move to the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Supper is a way is a way that we do just that. If you remember, when Jesus is instituting the Lord's Supper at the Last Supper, he tells his disciples this, he says, do this in remembrance of me. Remember me in this institution. Now what has John just gotten done telling us to do? Continue believing what we've been taught. And I would argue that the... So, and if that's abiding, abiding is to keep believing what we have been taught, I would argue that the Lord's Supper is a way we abide. It's to keep believing what we've been taught. And what has Christ taught us? This bread signifies his body for us, given to us. This is a, a promise from God to those who believe the gospel, that his body was given to us. It was, it was sacrificed for our sins, and his blood the same. He has made atonement through his blood. How do we abide? Every week, we abide by proclaiming to ourselves the message that we've been taught. And we hold fast to it as believers. This is our lifeline. This is what we got. This is our hope. Let us never steer from it.